All right, we're back to the Minimum Viable Podcast. My name's Luca Monk. I'm your host. People were complaining that I wasn't doing introduction introductions, uh, telling people who I was, um, but then also our guests. So this is my way of rectifying that. Um, but firstly, the MVP, the Minimum Viable Podcast, aims to help operators build faster. That's really what we're trying to do here. And and I'm doing that in a format that helps me build faster. <laughs> and I do that in a variety of ways. I, I, I talk to entrepreneurs and, and try to pick out lessons learned. I try to find tip tricks, tips, and hacks from high-performing operators, product builders, angel investors, and VCs, the list goes on. Um, you know, we have a great number of guests over the next five, six weeks who uh, I'm very, very excited to, to, to talk to. Matt Allen from Tractor Ventures, Elizabeth Yin from Hustle Ventures um, in San Francisco. Uh, we have Brian Lovin, who's a designer, so we'll unpack some things from a design perspective, not so much from the entrepreneurial um, or business building perspective, which is kind of where I've been going. Um, and I really just try to, you know, uncover the entrepreneurial story. And then as we go on that chronology, try to pick out little tidbits that I think are useful and, and try to turn them into insights. Today, I chat with a very good friend of mine, Benjamin Lindsay, Ben Lindsay, uh, who I met studying biomedical engineering at Sydney University, uh, high performance uh, businessman, high performance athlete, um, and he has so many good tidbits, so many great sales frameworks that we talk about. So we'll, you'll see that towards the middle of of the podcast. But just to give you some background, Ben was, uh, you know, a, almost an Australian level uh, swimmer, or he was an Australian level swimmer rather, uh, competing at sort of the world level. Uh, in his event, he uh, started university when he was 16, which we talk about. Uh, he came over from Perth to to Sydney uh, to study biomedical engineering and started a number of different businesses uh, during his time time there. He's now the founder and CEO at Solution, which is a clinically trialed medical device for the treatment of medial tibial stress syndrome, which is shin splints. Huge problem. Um, he is a master salesman. Uh, you know, growing Australia's first nootropic drink called Shine from 300 vendors to th over 3,000 vendors. So he took a lot about the frameworks of scaling that operation, uh, selling into SMBs and enterprise and kind of the different uh, tools that you can use to make that happen. Um, he became the program manager at Incubate for a short period of time um, after James Alexander, who we've also had on uh, the podcast. Um, he talks about the, the frameworks that he uses there to um, help startups go from zero to one when they're first coming up with an idea and then try to execute that idea. What are the, the focal points of your growth and success? Um, and then finally, he's kind of made this jump over now to uh, investing and very nobly of him. He's, he's a climate tech investor uh, at, a, at a great venture firm called Investable. Um, so lots, lots, to look forward, lots to look forward to in this episode. By the way, if you're if you're listening, you've, you're a returning visitor or a new visitor, I would love to hear from you how you how you came across this podcast, things that you think I could improve in this podcast, guests that you think would be amazing to have on board, the, maybe the types of questions I'm asking you don't you don't like, you'd like for me to extract certain pieces of information that might help you as an entrepreneur. If that's the case, you can you can contact me directly uh, at Luca at closingbell.co. That's Luca at closingbell.co. So if you want to get in, in touch with me, please do. Uh, I'm always trying to make this podcast better and better and better. Um, but for me, it's just a way for me to learn from some amazing, amazing 
people. So I hope you enjoy the episode today with Ben Lindsay. I thought I'd just start from the very beginning, which is like your swimming career um, and what that was like at your, you know, in your, in your, in your teens and, and yep. what that was. Cause I, I always thought that you went like to the Olympics or youth Olympics. Yeah. So I was one of those people who maybe relied heavily on the fact that I hadn't hit puberty, um, at a young, uh, when I was 13, 14, even kind of mm. going on to 15, um, I kept telling myself my time will come, I will grow. <laughs> um, and then at about 15, 16, I, started to get a little bit quicker. I used to be a, a breaststroker, um, trained yeah. over in Perth, just committed to kind of working hard, not really getting too far until about 15, 16. And then kind of in that yeah. period from 15 to 18, I just seemed to explode in height and strength. Um, and yeah. then at 18, I kind of like entered the, it was at the Australian nationals. I like entered 34th. Um, in an event, my friends even made this stupid joke video, um, uh, about like a, you know, like a movie advertisement because I was always so explosive and quick in the pool that, and they like always yelled flame on when I would start racing. <laughs> so, so they made this, like, I used to have red hair before I had no hair, um, uh, or reddish hair. So they really? like to go, they like to go flame on. Yes. I... <laughs> well, well, just, 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 just quickly. Because I can't remember what your your hair color was at, at uni. You're, you're telling me you were you were a full blown redhead, or was it like a like a strawberry blonde? Stra strawberry blonde. It was very red when okay. I was young, and then kind of like yeah. like uh, turned to strawberry blonde. Um, thank God. And then, um, but then, yeah, I don't know. It got pretty raspy and uh, gross, so I, I kind of shaved it off pretty pretty early on in the recession of my <laughs> hairline. Um, so. Yeah, no, so it was basically I entered that event. I was 34th. It's a pretty cool story, actually. Um, yes, yeah, so I was 34th. I swam a PB in the morning. So swimming was always like heats, then semifinals at night. And then if you as you progress to so the semifinals, top 16. And then the night after, it's the finalists. Um, so that's the top eight from the semifinal. And then in the morning, I, I got like 17th. Um, so I didn't quite make the semifinal. I was like, cool. Good job, did a PB. And then my now friend Tommaso kind of pulled out of the semi-final. He didn't want to do it. So then I was first reserve, which meant I got in the semi-final and I was on the outside lane. I thought nothing to lose, put my head down that night and then got ninth. Um, so I ended up being first reserve for the final. And then um, someone else pulled out of the, the final. So then I was first reserve, got into the final. And I remember the night after I was like, well, not many people kind of get this chance, kind of look down the pool, tried to G myself up. I've always been quite with racing and competition, quite like a emotionally controlled. I've always struggled to kind of G up and be aggressive. I managed to be a bit more aggressive that night and then touched the wall, turned around and I was third. So, wow, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like a, yeah, a mix of good luck that people just decided they didn't want to race <laughs> in yeah. the semi-final and then the final. And then, yeah, and that kind of set up my confidence. And from there, I went, won a few other medals, went to World Cups. Um, so I went to the World Cup in Singapore to represent Australia, which was pretty cool. Yeah. How, how, do, how does the World Cup differ from, like, the Youth Olympics or from, like, how far away from the Olympics is it? 
So the World Cups, I was always better at what's called short course swimming, so 25-metre pools. So the Olympic pool is 50 metres. I was always good underwater and sprinting, so the short course was always my thing, um, which was what the World Cups were done in. Um, so I don't know if you've seen the 25-metre pools, like turn halfway. Um, yeah, so Singapore, basically it means you go places and then you don't really go there. Um, you kind of go there, get driven to the hotel, stay in the hotel, eat some food, go to the pool, swim, go back to the hotel. Um, we went out to the shopping center once or twice, but that was about it. So that's, that's what it's kind of like traveling for swimming competitions. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who, who's a, a runner and he, he kind of got to the same level as you. He, he kind of went to that, maybe just one below the world cup, but he, he was always traveling always, yeah. you know, locked in and he was exactly like you as well. And he, I don't think he got very emotional. He was very like locked in. Um, yeah. and I, I will, I will circle back on this because at, at uni and this is kind of the next place we're going, you were somewhat of an enigma. Well, I, I saw you as an enigma, like, like, I, I don't, and I don't know why this was the case, but, uh, you, you started uni quite young. Um, you were always working on something. I heard this swimming stuff and I was like, this guy's like, always locked in. He's seems like a really high achiever. Can you tell me about you going to uni like really early on? What was, what was that like? And, and why was that the case? Um, so it's actually not that exciting a story as to why. So I started uni at 16 in part, I started mm. school in the UK. Um, mm. so I moved over to Australia when I was young and basically on the first, so in the UK, the, the school year, I believe starts in September. Um, from memory or uh, maybe August. Um, and then I'd done a few months of school over there, moved here and then they basically, so my mum was on my case about learning math at a very young age. So I had, I was quite good at arithmetic. I think I was better than I am now. And then I basically arrived at school and they did a quick test and just threw me up a year. Um, when I arrived to Australia, so I'd done a few months, they just thought skip the rest of the year. And then funnily enough in Perth, everyone seems to graduate at 17 um, and start mm. start uni, sorry, at 17. So I didn't start uni two years younger than everyone like I, I kind of found, found in the Eastern States. Um, I was a year younger, mm. but the weird stuff that occurred was I, my voice hadn't broken. <laughs> mm. So I was just like some little um, awkward <laughs> prepubescent kid running around the University of Western Australia studying um, civil engineering and finance. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I still got to go to all the drinking parties. Which, oh, interesting. Yeah, and then there's, I think there's some incriminating photos of people out there with 16 year old me as happy as can be with my thumbs up surrounded by I bet much, were, much older. <laughs> I bet you were having, you were having the time of your life. And by, yeah. and by the way, for any, for, for those watching and those listening, like you're talking about yourself being sort of prepubescent and small <laughs> and skinny, but if you met Ben now, this guy's got sh shoulders as wide as town hall station and, and he's absolutely <laughs> shredded. So yeah. very, very athletic now. So you, you definitely hit your stride. Like what, when you were 16, you would have just hit some massive growth spurt. Yeah. I think I just exploded upwards and outwards shoulder wise. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you did civil, this, this, is, this is new to me, so I, I didn't know this. You did civil finance at what uni in UWA. Perth Uni, right? Yep. You, yeah, Perth UWA. Uni. Yeah, UWA, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> the only the it's only really game. No, no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's very. It's not my. Pro- it's not my yeah. problem. Um, yeah. And at what point did you come to Sydney Uni? I mean, did did you do your time there, and then you thought I'm going to switch over and and go to the go to Sydney, or was it you know a matter of circumstance? Oh, look, I did civil engineering and finance because that's what I was told to do. Um, I didn't really know mm. what I wanted to do when I started uni. Um, yeah, so I, I, I started that. My, my, my dad comes from a background in oil and gas and hydrographic surveying. It's Perth. Mm. There's awesome opportunities in oil and gas and resources, particularly at universities, if you want to get into it. So I thought, why not? Mm. I'll just do that and see how I go. I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, Met some awesome people there, but then with with swimming, I was living quite a, quite a way away from where I was training in Perth, and then, mm. you know, I just when I was eighteen, I was still still in Perth. I just just won my first national medal, and then the West Australian Institute of Sport and the Australian Institute of Sport worked out this kind of mixed scholarship for me to go to Canberra for a bit, so I didn't have to travel so far. So I did that, mm. and then. Um, hated the studying in Canberra. So I started, I started studying at ANU and I stayed there for, sorry, I didn't start studying at ANU. I went to start studying at ANU and then saw the options in engineering just weren't what I wanted to do. And then, Mm. you know, didn't kind of mold well with the Canberra training program. So moved here to Sydney and, you know, found biomedical engineering pretty quick when I moved here, thought it looks pretty Mm. cool. And then kind of jumped on in when I was about, 19 years old i would have started biomed mm. yeah how'd you how'd you how'd you how'd you find biomed generally because by, by, by the way we, we studied the same more or less the same thing except maybe different majors i did electrical i don't know what what your major was maybe mech yeah mech mechanical yeah i thought yeah. it was really really cool it was um pretty much i was doing a degree which i thought was cool I don't, yeah. I don't know. Like all the technology was cool and the technology was interesting. I just didn't know it existed when I was studying in Perth. I know that sounds quite naive. And, and in Canberra, it wasn't until I, I kind of got over to Sydney then I met, um, I went to like some open day thing. I met Phil Borton, who kind of led the program, I think, at the time, um, or was one of the leaders of the program. Um, and yeah, he kind of sold me on it. And I thought it was super interesting. I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. That's the disclosure. I just thought it looked like an interesting degree. Um, thought I'd give it a go. And yeah, then I ended up seeing it through and enjoying it. Yeah, well, you're, you're one of the few people probably in in the whole degree who's who's gone on and built and made their own sort of biomedical product, which we'll, we'll talk about. We call, called Solution, which we'll talk about in a sec. But taking a step back from that, you you started another business called GoRep, which we discussed just briefly. Why? Firstly, what what drove you to this kind of entrepreneurial pathway? And then, two, what was GoRep? What went wrong? What went right? And kind of what were the key learnings from that that endeavour? Well, I can always thank um, James Alexander for getting me into entrepreneurship. So, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was doing biomed because it interested me. Um, mm. I was like, oh, maybe I do medicine. You know, like. My parents were always going, oh, you should do the GAMSAT, you should go become a doctor, make us proud. Um, but the reality was I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I enrolled in this unit of study that James Alexander, who had, was the program manager at the time of Incubate, was running. I can't remember what it was called. It was, I think it was just called like Tech Venture Creation. 
um, yeah. at the University of Sydney. I did it as an elective. Mm. And then the, it started from, from the get-go. So the, fir the first task was like this, here's a pen, here's $5, here's this 60-second slot um, two weeks from now. Go make as much money as you can and spend the 60 seconds um, telling everyone what you did. And I don't know, something inside of me just thought, oh, I'll just sell the 60-second slot. Um, mm. And then I approached, so I got to meet, I believe, yeah, so I basically approached Freelancer and said, hey, this is a third-year elective with some smart students. Do you want to advertise to the students um, about jobs <laughs> at Freelancer? Um, and then that was it, and I think I made four or $500 off them. <laughs> <laughs> so did you reach out to it freelancer i can't remember i think i at some point in that journey i got to meet cheryl mack so i think yeah. it was Cheryl. i think i met cheryl that way yeah but it was i didn't think much of it and then yeah i i presented on it james and james thought it was quite funny from memory yeah, um, yeah. and then yeah. i don't know through, throughout that i kind of just realized you know you could be creative on a variety mm. of things you can things like that unit of study taught me things can just not work at all and that's fine because you can learn from it and then kind of from there like you know throughout that unit of study i started doing weird things like i was an uber driver for example because i was like oh uber's cool i'm gonna be an uber driver this was back when everyone thought if someone else got in the car with me they were going to kill me um in mm. australia so it, it was just launching it's back when if you if you were a driver for 35 hours a week they would give you a minimum payment per week and i just okay. wasn't getting much trips so i was sitting there on my couch um with my car out the outside just not getting any bookings <laughs> and then i realized you could make more money referring drivers to uber than you could uber driving so it was mm. back when you could make 400 us dollars to refer an uber driver <laughs> so i just started doing basically whatever I could to refer other drivers, you know, Twitters, like tweets, um, you know, landing pages, mm. just kind of sharing it through groups and then just made extra cash that way. That led to me helping Uber on a contract kind of thing, giving out all their launch codes in Canberra, um, mm. all while I was doing that unit of study. So I kind of thought this is cool. I want to do it. And mm. then that led to that first idea, GoRep, which was mm. basically just showed me that, you know, I'm a little bit different, but in a different way um, that I kind of thought, well, I, I made money doing this. Why can't others? So we tried to make a startup mm -hmm. that allowed brands to grow through referral incentives. So, but not like mm -hmm. referral candy and things that plug into Shopify stores, but something where, you know, if I referred you, I would receive a cash payment, basically, just like the Uber driver thing. Um, mm -hmm. And what I learned very quickly was that there was social costs involved with that and people didn't want to refer their friends for money. Um, I didn't mm. seem to think, well, that was, that's a bit wrong. I, at the time in reflection, I was like, Oh, you know, I don't get, get why that's an issue. Like the friends get X, Y, Z, but the reality was I'd never also referred a friend. I'd only referred randoms um, to become Uber mm. drivers. So it was <laughs> a bit of a, wasn't the best idea. Um, didn't get much legs, but, um, no, it was an awesome experience. I took that through the incubate and through incubate the accelerator in class nine and learned a ton, learned that I was a terrible salesperson. Um, and then 
in turn, that's kind of led me to getting a sales role at Shine because I was mm. terrible at sales and wanted to learn how to sell. Yeah. Can you, can you talk to me about GoRep and the, well, firstly, you had a, a co-founder at the time or someone helping yep. you who was, who was Mitch, who's an engineer. Yep. Um, he must, I think he was freelancing at the time. I remember him being with news.com maybe, um, or maybe that was afterwards, but he was, he was an engineer anyway. And he, he's now done a couple of different cool things. Um, I think he worked, he's at Canva now, or he was at Canva. No, he's at Canva, um, yeah. Can, can you tell me what you did wrong? I mean, what was the big learning with GoRep other than the, the psychology aspect of people not wanting to refer their, their close friends? Um, what, what did you feel like was the biggest learning from that experience? I just rambled on the phone. Like I don't even, yeah, mm. there was, there was no chance for me to understand what being, you know, like you can, you can trump all you want being customer centric and thinking about the customer. But the reality was I got on the mm. phone and I didn't know what to do except talk about go rep. Um, mm. so I wasn't listening to customers. I think maybe earlier on we could have, you know, broken the trajectory we were going down. Fortunately, we didn't do it for that long. Um, you know, before we really started to see it. For example, I got I got the CEO of Domino's on the phone mm. um, at the time, which was like a big win. And I remember Mike Nichols thought it was awesome. So um, mm. he, he was the EIR at the time. Um, and then I basically got on the phone with him and I don't think I asked him a single question about Domino's, um, you know, and, and, their, and their strategy and how referrals could work. I just kind of just rambled at him about why he should use GoRep. And he was like, yeah, cool, mm. goodbye. Um, mm. yeah. And that's those kind of lessons I, I kind of apply, I've applied pretty much since, um, in all my sales conversations where it's the whole two ears, one mouth, um, approach mm. and, and listening and asking calibrated questions rather than just hardcore pitching from the first line. Yeah. I mean, if you were to do it again, what, what kind of questions would you have asked say the Domino CEO? Oh, um, I like using the spin framework. So situation, problem, implication, need payoff. So I'd probably want to, on a situational basis, maybe I'd want to get, you know, so I knew they were trying to drive, I worked out they were trying to drive the online traffic to their app. So situationally, I would have asked, you know, tell me pretty much, tell me about how you're driving traffic to the app. You know, what, do, what are you doing there? I would have kind of wanted to understand that whole situation a bit better where I thought GoRep could play. And um, the problem with it, you know, you know, what's, what's working, what isn't, you know, you know, trying to kind of dive into anything that's coming up from a problem standpoint, uh, the implication of those problems, you know, trying to understand if the app's performance from, you know, different, different methods of driving people to there is, you know, as a consequence, is the app not, you know, getting the uptake at once and then basically just you need payoffs. So what would it mean to kind of remove or solve those implications? Um, yeah, but I, but I tend to, whenever I'm doing sales stuff now using that framework, you know, really sit back and spend time thinking about those kind of calibrated questions and particularly mm. once, once you ask the situational ones and kind of get past that, using it more of like a flow rather than like a checklist just to make sure. So if the customer says something, you go down that kind of trajectory with them, um, not just kind of stick yeah. to your checklist. What was the framework again? Spin? Spin, spin selling, spin selling. Yeah. S P I N. 
by, I believe, I might be completely wrong. I think it's Neil Rackman. Hmm. Yep. Neil Rackman. And what does it stand for? Situational? Situation, problem, implication, and need payoff. Hmm. Yep. No, so it's awesome framework, and it's just use it as like a flow to the conversation. And it's basically like, it's all to do with cognitive ease, I imagine, where you don't walk into the conversation and just go, what would it mean to solve this for you? Like, um, you know, not only have you not really warmed the customer up, you haven't kind of shown that you're a listener and you're there to kind of understand them. So start easy with situational questions, get them to tell you about, you know, what the picture looks like in their own head. And then you can use kind of like their language and cues to position the problem question and then so on through mm. the implication and need payoff. Like, you know, if someone tells you, you know, I don't know, my foot hurts, you know, you don't then position a need payoff question as what would it mean to solve your sore hand, right? You know, like, I know that's mm. a, bit of, a bit of an exaggeration, but you want to use the language that they're using back at them just to show you or form mm. that kind of connection. Mm. And yeah. can, can you apply this, this spin framework to like, direct-to-consumer retail specific businesses. So this this framework sounds like it's probably better positioned for like B2B uh, on the phone sales um, or like enterprise style sales, but could, could you position this in your marketing almost? Uh, look, it's pretty similar um, to, depending the way you look at it, it's, you know, you've got your ADA framework, you know, awareness, interest, desire, action as well. So basically, you know, it's, it's just a different way of qualifying your lead. Uh, I haven't tried to apply spin in a marketing sense. Um, but again, it's, you know, with, with the ADA framework or, you know, your pirate metrics and things like that, there's essentially you don't walk into the conversation and the first line is a salesy remark, right? You're trying to show the customers that you understand them. You know, you're trying to build that emotional connection with them in conversation that's through mirroring their language, you know, using their language, using their cues back at them, labeling their emotions. Um, and then in marketing, which I'm not any, an expert in at all, um, you know, just trying to establish that emotional connection as well seems pretty important. Yeah. And I imagine a lot of this you learned from Shine. So I, I, I would like to talk about that experience because we were on the phone a couple of times while you were at Shine when I was working on some of my own stuff. Trying to sell you me your stuff, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to sell you my stuff and you were trying to sell me your stuff as well. So yeah, we're both selling each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, you gave me two, uh, three shine drinks. You came by the office once and I drank them and I had the bottles there as me mementos on my desk for, for the better part of six months until I started gathering a lot of <laughs> dust, um, at which point I had to throw them away. But can, can yep. you talk to me about shine? Like what, what was shine? What was your role at shine? And then, you know, I'd be keen to talk about the learnings there. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. So Shine was kind of like a very pivotal time in my career. So go rep, I was terrible at sales. You know, I really wanted to learn how to do it. I'd, I'd won this Shine student scholarship thing where they gave me $5,000 towards my degree. It was kind of one of their ways to launch um, and kind of get awareness in the university student market. So I won that and then I kind of met them. I liked, I kind of liked the founders. So Shine was founded by Sam Prince, who's the founder of Zambrero. And then he's kind of like apprentice at the time called Steve Chapman. 
Um, and they basically set out to create a healthy energy drink or, you know, using nootropics and things like that, um, you know, to kind of supply into Zembrera and other stores, right? So, you know, and so people didn't drink Red Bull and have all the consequences of having, you know, long-term consequences of a pretty unhealthy energy drink. That was kind of like the initial hypothesis. So I, I got to know these guys a little bit through the Shine Scholar program. I was looking for a job. And they were looking for someone in sales. And I basically said, it's like the worst sales pitch. I'm terrible at sales, but I promise you I'll figure it out. <laughs> and then they gave me a job as, their, as on their sales team. Um, and at the time I was, I had me and this other guy called Kane had just started together um, just as mm. business development executives. And then over kind of, I was only there for just over 18 months. We grew Shine from... Um, about 160, 200 customers to just under 3,000. Um, so 3,000 stores. Um, you know, I personally progressed from, you know, just being, you know, on the team of salespeople to, you know, kind of leading the sales team and kind of leading the charge and helping the team in that regard, which was an awesome experience. And then it went from like my first day, this is, this is like the, the biggest kind of, um, in reflection, you know, whenever I tell people sales is hard, mm. the best thing Steve Chapman, the CEO did for me was he drove me out in his car. He gave me a box of these ginger shots at the time mm. and then made me walk store to store down Crown Street in Surrey Hills and sell them. And I was, mm. petri I was absolutely petrified Yeah, <laughs> and I hated it. But um, over yeah. time, I just, you know, just got used to it, got built up the resilience to do it. And then it went from store to store sales to, you know, flying down to Melbourne, you know, to the Coles headquarters, 7-Eleven, you know, Woolworths headquarters, you know, Caltex, um, you know, and getting that kind of full range. And, you know, there was weeks, I think there was, you know, almost there was something like six or seven weeks in a row where I was just in Melbourne working with the distributors back there and, getting the full scope of sales from head offices down to, you know, one-on-one -on -one with the manager of a store. How does that differ? I mean, when you talk to the manager of a store versus when you talk to, you know, the procurement manager at a Caltex, how, how does that conversation differ and how do they, how do they go generally? Uh, Pretty much, you know, the framework's pretty similar. And, and I think, and this is a big lesson for anyone when you're kind of defining your, some people I think believe call it like their ideal customer profile. When you're looking at the size of a business and the person that you need to convince, you know, you've got, you know, different de decisions are made for different reasons, right? So if you're going to like a, a vegan cafe, you know, the selling point's not about units, unit sales per day, right? It's about, this is a healthy drink. This is a healthy alternative. They do care about margins, but that seems to be secondary um, to, it's a healthy drink, right? Where you're walking into, you know, a head office where the person in front of you is their KPI is based on improving sales, improving kind of, you know, the revenue at, at these sites or, you know, in the sake in, you know, for Coles and Woolies and things in certain categories of food, you know, so the unit of sales is kind of everything, right? The unit of sales per mm. day, the margins, because they're basically dealt surface area you know, or delta mm. volume of space to which they can put things and their mm. KPIs are based on the amount of things that they can sell in that designated area. 
So, but I say all that head offices really love stories as well. Mm. So you'd get to know them when they ask the story, you give them the full story arc of how the story started, you know, how, you know, it came, you know, we came to appear in their, in their, in their office, but then you would intertwine mm. the story with the things that they needed. Right. So the unit sales, etc. cetera, um, not just that it's a health drink. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. What was the, the single most important lesson you learned from, from Shine and that, and that sales experience, because just by the way, and I, I, I'll circle back to this question, but I, I did, uh, you know, direct sales on the side of a road selling, uh, it was my first job out of high school selling raffle tickets. Um, and they'd, they'd send us, I'm pretty sure the company's, uh, it's been shut down for illegal activity, but that's beside, <laughs> beside the point they, they would send us everywhere. They'd send us, you know, one day they get in at seven, do a sales sales run for an hour. Like they teach us like Jordan Belfort yep. style minus the sort of like extravagance Bulldogs. and they'd send yep. us out exactly. And they'd <laughs> G us up and then send us out to Padstow in front of the Woolies selling, s- selling that, raffle tickets. Did you tell everyone that walked past they had got crap shoes? So they engaged with you. Was that the tactic? Exactly. Yeah. Or you, you yeah. drop the raffle ticket on the floor and you say, Hey mate, you forgot something. And then they turn around and they want to punch them. you in the face when they see that. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I, um, I learned so many like psychological cues, like yeah. touching people on the shoulder, which probably isn't, uh, allowed now with COVID and stuff, but yeah. people on the shoulder and like mim- mimicking their body language, which isn't really used these, these, this day if you're on the phone. Um, but super important nonetheless. Um, yeah. so some of those things that I learned was just mim- mimicking really matters. And you, yeah. you mentioned before with the, uh, mimicking language, Mir- uh, something that yeah, I, yeah mirroring language rather what what was the most important lesson you learned from from shine um two most important lessons first one was um kind of looking after yourself um so it's a it's a bit of a different one but sales i found like to be and i don't think anyone realizes this until they've done it it's just physically and emotionally draining um you know like we were just you know there was these times where, for example, with Caltex, um, we were doing a trial at some Caltex sites. Um, and for some reason, some of the sites included Port Macquarie, Armadale, Glen Innes, you know, Taree. And basically, not only in my, so I basically have to drive in my little diesel polo from Bondi, where I was living, and then I would do this trip. And it would take, I would have to stay overnight, but it was basically two days of driving or spending 12 hours on the road, going to sites, checking it out back to back. So the first day, then getting up at 4am and getting straight to it the next day. And then the whole time doing calls. Um, so you've just got to like be everywhere at once. And what I kind of learned from all of that was in sales, you, it's good to celebrate the wins, but then you also you've got to maintain like this emotional control the whole way through what you do, or at least for me, I had to, because if you go up and you celebrate these huge wins too much, for me, I found that when the things were hard, I would also go down a lot. So by Mm. maintaining kind of emotional control and acknowledging the wins and celebrating them a little bit, I was also able to kind of temper, you know, the frustration, you know, with things not going so well and kind of level out how I behaved. And that kind of helped me and looked after me. And then secondly, 
everyone's different, right? So if you're hiring salespeople, and this was something that I taught at Incubate, and this idea of, I call like minimum momentum metrics intentionally because it's a mouthful. I think, <laughs> um, you know, every single person has a different baseline to start at, right? And I, I think it's unfair, you know, like you go into those kind of boiler rooms where it's like 300 calls today is what we expect you to do. And they're telling that to someone who's got no sales experience and you're just setting them up for, for failure. You know, being such an emotionally draining task where you're dealing with rejection all the time, I think the best thing a sales manager can do is provide a framework for the sales team su to succeed. And basically that starts with asking the person, you know, who's new to sales, how many calls do you think you can do today? Uh, and then they say five and you go, awesome. And then watch them do five. Um, you know, tell them well done at the end of the day, hey, you achieve that, can you do more tomorrow? Right, uh, how, can you do just one or two more tomorrow? And they go, yeah, sure. And then the reason I call it minimum momentum is, you know, personally, and then with sales staff, you kind of want to work out the minimum starting point for them to add momentum to the business. Um, it doesn't just apply to sales, it applies to any tasks that you're doing as an entrepreneur or founder. Work out your starting point, and then every time you achieve it, positively reinforce yourself, say, well done, and then just set out to do just a little bit more the next day, you know, and you kind of watch them grow like really quickly. Um, it's funny. You know, it's really, it's really funny. You mentioned, sorry to, sorry to interrupt. It's funny you mentioned this because I, um, in our Slack channel for work for closing bell, we I made a new channel called one percenters. Cause yeah. I felt like we, we were always going towards these big, as you mentioned, these big goals, you want to hit these yeah. and when you don't hit them, you kind of fall flat in your ass and you, you want to temper expectations on both ends. Yeah. But what gets lost in, what gets lost in the middle is like, what is building momentum? What activities are you taking that is driving the business forward? And so we, yep. we created this channel called the one percenters. And whenever you do something, no matter how small, but it's like a win, you got it, you got it off your checklist, you post it in there and it's like, yep. Ooh, you like you, 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 you know, whatever it may be, you did this little automation, bot, great. And it has to have some substance to it. It can't, it can't just be, you know, send, I sent off an email like the, the yep. If that's the minimum uh, requirement for our business, we're not going to do very well. But um, <laughs> yeah, little things, exactly. anyway. Do you? Do you? Yeah, go on. It's not. It's not do nothing or do just barely something. The the minimum. The reason I use the terminology minimum was because the minimum still defines like there's a threshold that you need to be at to keep moving forward, right? So um, mm. if someone comes along and goes, I think I can only do one phone call this whole week, it'd be like, all right, crap, this isn't the right person. <laughs> Uh, for the yep. job, um, you know, but I, I found it with a lot of a lot of the startups at Incubate as well. It wasn't just with sales calls, but I, I did learn it through sales, um, you know, just task management. So, you know, they set out to do five things each week. I like to make them pick. I like to ask them to pick tasks entirely within their control and basically mm -hmm. ask them, you know, on a performance metric each week. All right. Where are you at right now? Let's start there. And then my, my job as the, the program manager at the time was to assess to them every week how they went in each task and then provide them the reinforcement and guidance that they can now step up a little bit and do a bit better this week. And what you saw over using my engineering side, which was, it sounds a bit dull, but it was a huge reinforcer was I would plot this all on a graph for them and they would get to see themselves as a team or as an individual, their performance just trending upwards 
on a graph. And mm. you can do that with salespeople. If they're only doing 10 calls their first week and then 15, you show them visually the trajectory which they're on. And then also watch the motivation when that kind of gradient goes negative a little bit. Um, so if they have a mm. drop off one week and then you show them a visualization of it, they go, oh, crap, uh, and then get back on mm. the horse. Yeah. So were you making these charts on a case-by-case basis, like for the metrics, you know, each business had their specific sort of North Star metrics that you then plotted, or or was there a more general framework that you were using for that? At Incubator at Shine. Uh, for, for, you, for your cohorts at Incubate. Yeah, so um, pretty much I use this. So it's, uh, I believe, Aubrey Daniels, he's got a book. I can't actually remember what it's called off the top of my head. I think it's something like getting the most out of people. It, 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 talk, it talks through positive, ne- positive and negative reinforcement and penalty and punishment and how to use kind of like different, you know, it's basically an introduction for me for, for a lot of people to kind of like behavioral psychology in the workplace or organizational psychology. It was recommended to me by um, actually Rich White of WiseTech um, when I met him at an event. Mm. I was like, what book should I read? And he said, this one. And then that was right after I kind of like had just left Shine. And then it was like this reflection on what I was personally doing at Shine. I read this book and it kind of goes into this scorecard approach that we use at, I believe, a military school. Um, and basically you just set out the tasks that you need to do to move the business forward. So with all the startups that incubate, if they were looking for investment, they were looking for sales or they were looking to build their product. We look for five things, core things each week that if all hell around them broke loose, if they just progressed on those five things, you know, even just a little bit that they are maintaining the momentum required to move their business forward each week. So, mm. you know, it would basically be five metrics left. And then on the left-hand side of the table, it would just be like the metric, you know, the score for each of those metrics on the baseline week. All right. So what's the minimum you need to achieve that's going to move your business forward in this metric, that metric. So number of calls, for example, number of sales, you know, productivity as a team, number of meetings attended, you can, whatever they kind of wanted to do. And I kind of let them, let them be malleable with it all the way through to the other side, you know, mapping out over a few tiers, you know, the optimal kind of achievement. So what would be an amazing week, right? Like, so hundred percent of tasks done um, and stuff like that, or, you know, three, 400 sales calls done, whatever they wanted to build to. And then over the incubate kind of, you know, 13 weeks, you'd honestly, time and time again, you just watch them start at their baseline. You'd say, well done. You know, if they didn't achieve their baseline and I thought it was actually too hard, I'd get them to reassess it. You want to set them up to win and you just watch the teams time and time again, get better and better just through self-reinforcement from watching the improvements on the graph. And then the other thing is like sometimes you know, people don't realize how well they achieved or well they did that week. So I remember one team once felt like they had a really crap week. Um, you know, they felt like people weren't being receptive. They did all this other stuff, which was important. And then when we mapped it out and kind of scored them on their performance based on what they said they wanted to do at the start of the program, they realized they actually had an amazing week and it turned the whole demeanor of the team from this was a crap week. This is, I feel down. I don't feel happy to, Hey, we actually did really well. Um, let's keep moving forward. And then the week after they did amazing as well. Mm. 
It's very hard to about, explain about, this without uh, pictures or no, drawing it for you. Uh, yeah. If you <laughs> if you have any if you have any examples, um, like it's a, this is a, a clip that I wouldn't mind clipping it. I could even overlay it on on the thing if you have an example of it. But if not, I, yeah. I, I understand what you're what you're trying to say. And I've, I've spoken to a, a couple of other people on the podcast who've done similar things. Yeah. A guy called Dilhan, um, who I went to school with, who started a business uh, called Urban Plant Growers, which is doing really yeah. really well. They got a warehouse in Marrickville. Yeah, yeah, they're cool. On his, he got a got a um, big big chart on his uh, in his uh, office, doing exactly what you're saying. What are yep. the six metrics that matter the most that will push forward this part of the business? Their business yep. is a little bit larger than they're a little bit more multi-focused now. But um, and so I, I resonate I resonate completely, and we're we're doing the same thing on our end. We're just trying to figure out what those those things are. I think primarily for most startups, it's just like sales, just makes <laughs> make make sales <laughs> if possible. Unless you're unless you're like a consumer specific kind of free to use yeah. product. Um, ABC, always be close. ABC, always, yeah. that's right. Can, can you can you tell me about uh, about Incubate? Because I worked at Incubate back in 2014 for a year under James. Everyone has nice things to say about James. He's now doing Galileo. And he in that transition to, to Galileo, he kind of passed the baton on to, to you. And I wasn't surprised that it was you. I was I actually loved it, uh, every bit of it. Um, what, what happened there? How did, how did that come to be? Oh, it was it was a surprise for me actually. So I was at EIR. So after I left Shine, I was working on solution and I needed some cash, basically, you know, mm. to kind of get it up and running. Um, my founders, mm. you know, they made a decision. Like well, as a team, I get, we made a decision not to to raise capital and kind of bootstrap mm. it to a certain point. So I basically I was working as a sales EIR at, at, at Incubate, and that's when James was PM. Um, program manager and I did that for I believe a couple of years um, maybe a year and a half um, mm. memory is actually foggy on that transition so I did that mm. for a bit worked with a lot of teams you know really enjoyed it and then James was leaving to do Galileo um, which is pretty mm. awesome I think it's an awesome kind of trajectory to see and then they hired another program manager and and she wasn't there for very long um, so, and she, and she kind of, she kind of, she got, she got, she got an inter, she got a, a fellowship or an internship in Berlin at a VC fund. So mm. all like, you know, removing the laughing aside, it's actually a very good decision for her, you know, seeing, you know, under, if you knew her goals and what she wanted to achieve, it was a very, you know, it worked really well for her and, you know, it was a good decision, mm. but it kind of left incubate without a program manager a few weeks out from the next class starting. And then Ash Wallington, who was the director of innovation at the time, kind of approached me and was like, oh, can you be program manager? And I, I initially said no. Um, mm. And it was like, no, I just can't do that. Like, I can't do a full-time role. Like, I'm, I'm working on my startup. I can do two days. That's it. And then mm. what I kind of didn't realize was James was full-time when he started. He had a lot of things to build. But at the time, Incubated grown to a team of 11 including James mm. and you know, I had, I didn't realize that I was getting very good ratings as a mentor with a lot of the startups helping with helping them with their sales strategies. Um, and mm. basically got, got offered this role. I started two days a week as program manager. So I just do their team meetings on Monday and Tuesday, mm. which was where we did that metric kind of, kind of work and then helped facilitate mm. all the workshops on the Fridays and then 
in between they could just come up to me and ask ask me any questions i'd work out of the office that's kind of like the transition and then COVID hit <laughs> so mm. so i was i was there until may we did the whole first cohort um under me as pm the the university didn't renew my contract you know um incubate unfortunately not the university sorry the university of sydney union didn't renew my contract mm. um understandable you know they a huge mm. amount of their revenue relies on students to be on campus students weren't on campus and then mm. after that you know i kind of went off the grid a bit worked on solution worked as an engineering lead for a few medtech startups to kind of help them get off the ground and kind of get through mm. all the tga approvals and things like that and then at the end of that year about six months after losing the job i got offered the job again and went back <laughs> so <laughs> well at least they wanted you at least it wasn't you <laughs> yeah, that's validation I, I that, that they needed it's you being nice right yeah so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very good okay awesome um one, one and you mentioned solution and it's one really important part to this whole story and it's i kind of looked from afar as you were working on this and i i really admired you kind of like going off after finishing engineering and then kind of what well, you were doing it while you were doing engineering and, and sort of kicking goals in that arena. Can, can you give me the sort of the, the story of uh, solution? Like, what is it? How did it come to be? Um, yep. But then I also want you to give me like a little bit of a, a masterclass in how you launch a product like this, because it's very, very, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a hard industry to break through in and it's there's a lot of regulations and it's not yep. your typical kind of like startup so take me from the beginning and then walk me through how that how that came to be so i have terrible shoulders when i was swimming so i used to have to run a little bit to do some low-end activity for just cardio do some skipping and i would always get shin splints you know which we can get into in a bit later and it was just a nightmare to treat i met when I was at the Institute of Sport in Canberra, I first met this other runner called Will McNamara, who was studying medicine. He'd also had the injury. And we kind of talked about it a bit, never spoke again until I moved to Sydney. Um, and then reconnected with him in Sydney, told him I was now doing biomed engineering. Um, he told me, you know, he wanted to do something to fix shin splints. He'd partnered with a designer called Rosa, who was a gymnast, Rosa Miller, who also had suffered from shin splints. Um, and pretty much what we realized was at even a high level of sport, the treatment period was useless, right? So if you have had this injury, it's called medial tibial stress syndrome, which is just like a stress reaction of the tibia bone, your shin bone. If you kind of surpass this like eight week threshold, and, you know, moving on from like acute pain to chronic, you know, the average treatment time was 250 days, not average, sorry, 90% of people take 250 days to kind of get over the injury through load programs and things like that. And if you're talking to like NRL players and things like that, a whole season of not being able to play a game properly that you're paid to play is a huge issue, right? Mm. There was treatment, there was treatment protocols and things that worked. It just essentially took a long time. And you're also dealing with athletes who like psychologically, at the start, the injury doesn't hurt that much, right? It's just like a little mm. annoying thing on your shin that just gets worse. Um, so people just ignore it and just go, I'll oh, just run through it. Um, so we kind of decided, all right, treatment takes too long. Um, 
even even at high levels of sport. Um, let's try and solve this. Let's try and make what's called an adjunct therapy to treatment. So a therapy that you kind of bolt on to what currently works to see if we could speed it up. Now, the whole go-to market of solution as a medical device, quick disclosure, it's a class one medical device, so it's not too difficult um, in comparison mm. to, you know, class two and up. Ex explain, but, explain the difference between class one and class two. Uh, class one is basically non-invasive, um, you know, very safe to use, so very low risk. Um, whereas class two, um, depending on the category and depending um, on where we're talking, you know, is more invasive and more at risk or has electrical components like active components and things like that. So the solution was basically, it's a simple, well, the hypothesis in the end was it was going to be a simple thing. You know, it wasn't going to go under the skin. It wasn't going to, you know, you know, you weren't going to use it on open wounds and things like that. So generally all we kind of wanted to do was go, all right, based on our hypothesis of treatment, which came from reading a lot of research and identifying risk factors that we wanted to kind of get rid of. Um, if we did an RCT, um, so a randomized control trial to show it worked, you know, the current, the current competitors on the market were all useless, right? Like not just treatment wise, there was a lot of products which have, you know, no clinical evidence that they work. In fact, to the contrary, they're shown they don't work, but they still sell themselves mm -hmm. as the supports, not the treaters. So we did, we knew it would have to be low in, you know, on the low end of the risk scale and non-invasive, and we weren't going to do anything surgical. So yeah, we, we set out to like, like do a class one medical device. Yeah. I can't remember where mm -hmm. I was going with that Luca. No, well, I'm curious to know, like, how do you, how do you then get accredited to, to do the class one medical device? Are you going through the TGA? Like how does, yeah, yeah. you gotta, you gotta catch me up on that. Cause I remember doing a course on this, but I wasn't present probably for a lot of it. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's more tedious than a normal D2C product, but anyone who's got, un, you know, anyone who's made a normal product, you know, to an ISO standard. So the international standards of quality kind of management mm. kind of understands where they're at. It's pretty much, you know, for, for a class one TGA product, you know, can you, are you making it with safe materials? What evidence do you have that it's safe? You know, so we also did like a safety study with the Doppler ultrasound. So we bought a Doppler ultrasound online for 800 bucks mm. or something. And then Will at the time, who was now a doctor, basically just did you know, a Doppler ultrasound on everyone to make sure that blood was flowing and then there was no arterial occlusion. So the arterial blood flow wasn't stopping and things like that. So that was how we kind of proved, proved in our minds that it was safe. Um, the RCT was the tricky one. So the randomized control trial, and that would be the trickiest one mm -hmm. for everyone who's listening, which is they get expensive when they're, not investigator initiated, I believe is the terminology. So what we did was we saw, if you understand the pathway to specialization in medicine. So in our case, for someone to become a sports and exercise physician, when they're registrars, when they're on the specialty training programs, they have to do studies, they have to do research so that they can then become a specialist. So we kind of hypothesize, mm. well, what if, we help, what if we like give someone on a golden plate a study, 
right? So they don't have to mm. think about what study they have to do. We won't get to control the stats. We're just going to, we're going to trust the device. We're not going to try and manipulate stuff. We're going to give them the product. They're going to do a study. It's going to help them get to this, you know, you know, become a specialist. Is mm. that going to work? And then, yeah, it did. Like we found, <laughs> we found some sports and exercise registrars who were like, awesome. We would love to do this. So we just gave them the mm. devices. You know, they did an investigator initiated randomized control trial, saved us a lot of money. We didn't have to pay for insurance. You know, we didn't have to pay the, you know, the hefty fees for doing a private study, all these different things. And if anyone's got a medical device out there, particularly class one, that's what I would start thinking about. So if, if you want to do a randomized controlled trial or any study, who out there is going to benefit from doing the study for you? Um, on their way to becoming a specialist and, and approach them and see if they want to do it. Hmm. Hmm. I feel like there's just so many difficult parts to this kind of business. The first part getting yeah. approved. Well, I assume I, well, I can make the assumption that everything turned out pretty well from that, from that, um, that study, uh, yeah, that you guys were happy yeah, enough yeah, to take it to market. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, the, the data came back from the study, clinically and statistically significant pretty early on. Like they were just seeing the patients who wore it um, getting better from very early days. And then the, well, based on, based on the data that they were collecting and then, you know, the placebo, which was a mimic of the competitors, which were on the market, the just normal compression sleeves wasn't getting any results. So, um, which was expected, right? There's a lot of studies to, to that back that up as well. So, yeah, they, they were pretty happy with it. We were pretty happy with it. You know, the, the device is patented. So that's the other lesson that I learned through all this. Patents are expensive, but they're not as expensive as you think. Um, everyone keeps mm. going, our oh, patents are $200,000. They're really not. Um, mm. You know, they might be over a period of time, you know, but, you know, you're looking at payment installments as you go. So you claim your prior art date, you know, three to $8,000. Then you've got your PCT filing, Thing, it's 12 or 18 months later and then you know which is maybe ten thousand dollars and then after that you've got your national phase and all the incremental filings which all aggregate and build up but you don't have to sit there and have two hundred thousand dollars in your bank account to get started um mm. yeah and with with the tga stuff class one medical devices you know if anyone is a medical device entrepreneur you look at the essential requirements checklist or the essential principles checklist and you just go through it the tga you know, both the TGA, the European Medicines Association, they all provide you literally a checklist to follow on that, you know, you just check the boxes on and make sure you have all the requirements to get your medical device registered. And you'll see with class one medical devices, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> but you still you need to do stuff. Back end? But yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, 100%. Can you talk about the back end of the business? Because there's one side, which is, and just to finish off my point from before, is like you have getting it ready, getting the product ready, and it's not like a you can't kind of do a minimum viable product. You can't do any of that. You kind of got to you kind of got to have the whole solution ready to go. How, how do you sell that? I mean, you, surely you that 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 part there would be quite complicated as well. I imagine. So what do you mean there? So not not making an MVP like or well. I was just going to ask on the, on the back end, like, how do you sell this product and who do you sell it to? And then yeah. how do you scale ideally this kind of product uh, yeah, well, and how do you bring it to market? So 
I will just disclose. So this this business isn't what I was hoping it would be. Um, you know, hmm. what what we learned. So something really interesting happened, right? So when we and I've been trying. I still have been trying to work out what I did wrong. So we were doing this New South Wales health program. We spoke to 73 physiotherapists and podiatrists and sports and exercise physicians and about 490 runners. Um, and there was like, yeah, like this is a, this is, I think of the runners we spoke to 16.4% of them were like, this is the word, this is my, the, you know, medial tibial stress syndrome is injury. I battle the most when we're talking about injuries that they battled and things like that. So we're kind of verifying it's there. You know, the solutions only cost the same as a pair of shoes, you know, running shoes. So they're pricey, but they're not cheap, basically. Um, but the interesting thing kind of happened. We thought this was going to be a play where we would sell to clinics and then clinics would then sell to consumers, right? Um, but what we found happened was that even with the clinical data, which all the clinics told me that's what they would need to use as soon as we took it to the market, they wanted to still see it work in front of their eyes. So all of them wanted free samples. You know, we worked out that mm. they weren't, we worked out very quickly that they said they were seeing this many patients a month with the injury come to clinic, but we actually found out that most patients were trying to fix it online um, using mm. Dr. Google. Um, mm. So there was like a disjoint from the research that we did and then what kind of started kind of flowing through after we spent a year and a half, two years selling it what we've kind of worked out and been able to really segment on now, now that we've been out there for a year and a half. So I like to say solutions, the size in each country solutions in it's the size of a hair salon. Cause I go to hair salons. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, so it's not big. It's, we hit good net profit margins by, by the, uh, the kind of distribution and sales model we use, but the customer target that we're targeting is either a very, like a high level athlete. So we're like an official supplier, for example, for the Melbourne rebels. And um, so we supply the devices and sell devices to a few professional teams. Um, we've got clinical partners that sell it into clinics, but the biggest market for us, and we're still working out on the segmentation of is that the consumer who's had it chronically and has tried everything else, right? They're the biggest advocates. They become the super fans. You know, these are the iron men and iron women who've spent years with this injury. They've tried shoes, they've exercises, whatever. You know, we've got quite a few written reviews up on some running media outlets from those guys and girls <laughs> where they've been a chronic sufferer and then the device has sold it, solved it for them. Because what we noticed was even though we get those results and those results get shared, <laughs> if someone's only had it for eight weeks, they're going to, they just basically take the risk. Um, so what we're currently working towards now is segmenting out the people that have had it chronically uh, and, and trying to support them. Yeah, yeah, understood. Um, so you're still working on the solution because now you are, and I said this earlier, you've sold out and now you're a VC. Well, not sold dark out, side. but yeah. dark side of the moon. Um, yeah. How did that transition happen? I mean, you... you you're still working on solution and you're still working on distribution and getting that to market, but the hard work seems like it's been done as far as getting the product ready. You decide yeah, to leave incubate and go, you know what? Yeah, go on. Uh, yeah, I think there, there's still plenty of hard work to do with solution. It's just in a, in a different way. And I think, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the conversations I failed to have, so my, my 
co-founders of Solution, I didn't really know them that well before we started Solution. Now we're all kind of like best best friends. So, mm. but there there has still been in terms of the business Solution, there was like a, a bit of a founder divergence, and it, it's probably my fault, right? Where I didn't have the, I don't think I had the right conversation with them to understand what they were hoping to achieve, right? And what they wanted mm. to do, not just what they wanted to achieve with Solution, but like what did they as individuals want to do? I think very early and as well, we did kind of have this conversation, but I don't think we did it the right way where, you know, it's easy for someone to say, oh, if the business is making millions, of course, I'm going to work on it full time because, you know, then I can shut, you know, I can pay myself stupid director's mm. fees and, you know, like all, all this mm. crap. So, but it didn't get like that. We worked out pretty soon. The market wasn't that big and it could be something where, you know, we can make a decent salary. It could be a decent sized business and we can maybe exit it later. And just at some point, there was a bit of founder divergence, like the orthopedic surgeon is now in training to be an orthopedic surgeon. So he doesn't want to risk that career. You know, myself mm. and the designer were kind of left, you know, a bit hanging on that where it would cause a few blockages, you know, because we were moving mm. at a speed that was too quick. And, you know, mm. that that was basically it. And, and I did this thing. I know uh, you've probably heard of the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. Yeah. It was, it was worse at, at solution. So I worked out that 90% of the revenue came from 10% of my effort. And I did this thing where I just mm. turned off 90% of my effort for a while mm. and it mm. was still making the same kind of income. So, you know, the market isn't big enough. The demand isn't big enough, I think, to make it a full-time single product skew. If we were going to be in a bit the business of making multiple products, I think that was a different game. But, um, you know, the founder divergence kind of just thought, well, let's build this up. Let's focus on that 10% that gets 90% of the revenue. Let's go through the distributors. Let's launch into new countries kind of methodically with those distribution partners. Um, for us, that also guarantees us revenue from them um, as well. In, in Not guarantees, but it, it kind of de-risks quite a bit of revenue. And we can understand the margins we're going to make in each country. So we've just started mm. doing that uh, and we've been pretty happy doing it that way since. Um, so I spent about 10 hours probably a week on it. And then, yeah, with that, I was basically like, well, what the hell do I do with the rest of my time? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you, you're kind of living the, the, you're kind of living the four hour work week in that sense. Like you built this product, you, you, you stripped away all of the, the bullshit and you're just using your time in the most effective kind of way just to scale it out. You've got the product ready. It's not a software product that needs constant maintenance. It just does its job. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a win. Like I, I I don't, I couldn't chalk that up as anything else just because, you know, just because you didn't get the the multi-million dollar exit doesn't mean that that's a, that's a a loss in any way, shape or form because the learnings are incredible. You've got a product that's like self-sufficient, you know, passive, you know, if you want to call it passive income, you can call it passive income. Um, aside from that, from that, that 10% of time. So, well, those, those 10 hours. So I, I think that's a, that's a huge, 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 huge win. Um, and yeah, so prop, I'm, I'm props hoping, to you and your, and your founders. We're, we're hoping that we're going to be running. It's like, we're going to be running 20, 30 hair salons, uh, on 10 hours of work a week. Um, it's yeah. kind of like, it's kind of the goal, but, um, it's not bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it still should be good. And like, yeah, I think, um, in that regard, I, you know, there's lessons to have been learned on the customer discovery side, but then, you know, not even just the customer discovery side, you look at the market dynamics, particularly here in Australia. And for some reason, you know, we're like, well, the customers are telling us one thing, but you know, 
if we actually look at sales rates and things of similar products, you know, they're not that high, but we're going to win because our product and all this, you know, our product's better and they're telling us it's better and mm. they hate these things. But then the reality was, you know, it isn't sports medicine sales in that regard. It just wasn't as big a market as probably we were hoping, you know, tee that up is just a good lesson learned really um yeah but yeah we're pretty lucky i think with what we've achieved with it um because now you know will's training to be a surgeon um rose is mm. working on the innovation team at pwc and loving it and then yeah i'm working mm. at investable which is pretty cool as well yeah can you can you talk we'll, we'll wrap up soon um yeah. but this is like kind of the the uh the final piece to the final piece of the puzzle so to speak um you, you going to, to VC land and, and working at Investable and taking all of these learnings that we've just sort of like chatted about for, for close to 70 minutes. Um, and, by, and by the way, before I, you know, if I, if I start to uh, fade, it's because my girlfriend has COVID and I've just started experiencing symptoms as of this morning. So I'm, 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 I'm powering yeah. through. I've had, I've had two, two coffees. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, uh, uh, well, not stay awake, just try to be okay. So, um, but don't, I, no, don't, I, I, I'm really, don't. really, don't don't be one of those people in the states that starts just drinking colloidal silver and turning blue. Um. Yeah, well, well, sorry, it's too late actually, mate. I've been drinking a lot of colloidal silver. <laughs> that, that's what's been in this cup the whole time. <laughs> um, so, so you got to investable, like, yeah. And and rather rather than talk about how how you got to investable and all that, I'm I'm keen to know what are your key learnings. And what have you seen being on the other side of the table? I'm keen just to get your kind of summary, um, your cliff notes, uh, being now on the other side versus being the founder or kind of being the observer. Oh, it's, it's, it's like, it's basically what they told us the whole time. It's, um, it's, you, it's <laughs> got to have an amazing founder. Like, um, yeah, like it, it's, it's quite, well, so investable likes pre-seed and seed stage investments, right? And then on the climate tech funds, you know, we're looking at technologies, technologies that are, they might not pre always be predominantly hardware or deep tech, but at the moment, what we're seeing, they're predominantly hardware and deep tech. There's not much software coming through. Um, there is a few dribs and drabs of software, but we're looking at like awesome, complicated technologies, you know, trying to solve the biggest problems with like electric aviation, you know, hydrogen fuel cells, batteries, you know, water and mm. waste management, all these awesome things. And they're super early on. So the commercial proof is quite often what most people wouldn't consider commercial proof, right? It's like um, what, well, personally, I'm looking for, because I can't speak to the whole team. For me to vouch for the founder or vouch for the idea that's coming through, I'm kind of looking for this balance of, based on the market's user needs, how has the founder or the founding team kind of interpreted that and developed these design inputs? And in the outputs of their product, how, you know, what evidence have they got that their product's kind of solving these user needs and, you know, inputs. And I like seeing that very methodically set out and it's something I like to ask them about. Um, but what they kind of told us and the biggest thing I've seen is it's all about the founding team, right? Like if someone's, mm. you know, they don't necessarily have to be charismatic. The most impressive founder I've met to date isn't, hasn't been that charismatic but we're looking to back him, you know, him and his team were in the final stages of the transaction there purely because he, the story behind how he got to where he is, is just remarkable. The amount of effort he puts in is remarkable. 
you just understand mm. and know and believe the mission he's on and mm. awesome top there's an awesome bit of hardware there um but ultimately it was mm. like well the hardware can kind of go anywhere really is the founder the founder going to make it so yeah can, can you expand on that so so what's the you know, it's hard to define these things in in yeah sort of discrete discrete chunks but like what what would you look for in the checklist or what's at least where's your mind going when you're looking at a founder uh, coachability and humility um i think is a big thing so mm. i know other people have said it i believe i first heard it from ray dalio um which was like you know just know what mm. you don't know uh or not you know mm. understand that you know i can't remember i'm yeah. fucking it up now because i'm getting tired but um yeah, yeah uh you know basically know what you unknown don't know, unknowns right? Yeah, yeah. Know what yeah. you don't know. Don't don't try and you know bullshit your way through it. Um, and, and that's been the most remarkable thing. As soon as the founder goes, actually, I don't know the answer to that, and then they go work it out and get back to you on an email, like within the next twenty four forty eight hours, and they keep up that communication. I know Mark Susser has that lines not dots approach, and um, mm. it's incredibly important. And I, you know. You see a lot of VCs doing it, but it's it's very applicable, right? Rather than having that one meeting with the founder, all these different touch points start to build up this trust and this profile of the person that you can potentially work with. And if the, the line's pointing upwards, um, you know, it's pretty easy to understand that they're a remarkable person, right? So know what you don't know, go out and figure things out, you know, be hum humble enough to accept that, be coachable, like a big thing not to kind of, plug investable too much a big thing that what what investable do is they've got a whole you know kind of network of high net worths who are mostly self i believe mostly kind of self-made and have been there and done that so mm. if you tell us what you don't know and we've invested in you we can point you in the direction of someone who might know the answer and they can help you right so mm. we want someone who's going to be coachable and, and knows these things so we can point them in the right direction um, and know they're not just going to spin their wheels on the wrong thing. Yep, that's a good so, point. Um, what, what's the, and we'll wrap up after this, what, what's the most, uh, you mentioned hydrogen uh, fuel cells, by the way, and I've, I've been reading up on that. It's the guy, uh, I forget his name, he ran the production board. Uh, his name escapes me, but he was talking about hydrogen fuel cells and, and its implication for sort of energy production. What's What's the... What's the, the most exciting technology that's come across your desk um, in the last, well, since you started? Oh, I'm going to be careful. Um, I, I personally, I love planes. <laughs> so okay. I'm a sucker for, so I think, I think in you know, aviation, right, there's, you know, you've got EV tolls, you know, so you're, you know, electric vertical takeoff and landing kind of vehicles, you know, like AMSL Aero, things like that. Awesome Aussie company. Um, you know, then you've also got, you know, your light aircraft, right? So if anyone's interested in electric aviation, you can go look at Rolls-Royce's The Spirit of Aviation. There's all these awesome things happening in the space, right? The question kind of fundamentally remains is, you know, is it going to be battery powered or is it going to be hydrogen fuel cell powered, you know, power, you know, mm. and it's all a bit up in the air because, you know, the battery technology at the moment doesn't allow for long range kind of flight and, you know, long range travel. Uh, and then the hydrogen fuel cells aren't, you know, quite there for a lot of, a lot of the applications as well. So the most exciting thing for me, 
with my natural affinity for planes <laughs> um, mm. was on the motor side. So an awesome motor, right? Because for me, mm. you know, hydrogen powered or battery powered requires an awesome high performing electric motor that achieves mm. the correct torque density to actually get a plane to fly. So that, that was mm. the coolest thing. And, you know, that was just back the, you know, backed up by an awesome founder. So, yeah. Awesome. And by the way, before I was, uh, I was referencing hydrogen fusion, not hydrogen oh, fuel go. cells, which I, I know little to nothing about. There you go. Um, if, if any of your listeners uh, are into PEM electrolysis and they've worked out an awesome membrane technology, then I'd love to chat with them. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure they, there'll be one they, or two people who've been working on that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So I'll leave that, leave that up to them. Is, is there anywhere you want to take anyone, send anyone, any last words before we, we wrap this up and, and go to sleep? Honestly, I think that the most awesome thing or the best thing that I've found working at Investable is the fact that I'm allowed to get everyone to email me their startup ideas and we'll tell them mm. if it's not right, we tell you why it's not right and what, what we're looking for. And I mm. get held to that. So if I haven't done my passes and told startups why I haven't done it, the investment director kind of reminds me and gives me a nudge. Um, so the best mm. thing for anyone to do if they're interested in VC funding is just email me, bennettinvestable.com, whether you're climate tech or not, and you'll mm. get feedback on your startup idea. That's that's a great proposition there. You're going to have a lot of emails after this getting straight, mostly from me, actually. I'm going to have a whole bunch of ideas I'll, <laughs> that I'll, I'll send you away. Mate, it was um, it was awesome to have you on, uh, and I know we've been trying to tee this up for a, for a little while. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. You got such an interesting, uh, interesting background. You've done so much in such a short amount of time. So I can only imagine like what the next kind of like 10 years looks like for you. I lost my hair for it. Yeah. Well, that's, you look, you look, you look good though. It's shiny. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit the stop button.